Amen. The book of Proverbs is training God's image bearers to be kings and queens of creation. The book of Proverbs is not just a book of maxims and generalities about how to just do a little bit better in various realms of life. God has created us to steward life and creation for His glory. And we don't do this in lives of folly. We do this by living wisely. As chapter 1 and chapter 31 of Proverbs frame the whole book of wisdom for us, we do it living for the glory of God in the fear of the Lord. We do so knowing that God's name is worthy of praise and adoration. And that we have been made to know God. To glorify God. And the book of Proverbs is training us for this end. That we would walk in wisdom. To be faithful stewards and image bearers. There is nothing more relevant to your life than to seek wisdom. There is nothing more urgent for your heart than to seek wisdom. Nothing more lasting in the good it brings for your soul than wisdom. And there is nothing that will strengthen your relationships more and give you greater discernment as you navigate life's decisions than to seek wisdom. The opening chapters of Proverbs are clear. Do all that you can, and for as long as you can, to seek wisdom. Seek it like silver. Seek it like your life depends on it. For truly, your soul was made to know God, and wisdom for your soul is what we need. And as we've spent our 13, and this is the 13th one here, 13 sermons in Proverbs chapters 13 to 14, we come to a unit that begins and ends with reference to royalty. You may have noticed this in verse 28 and 35 in the hearing of the word. In verse 28, the glory of a king is referred to. In verse 35, the king's favor is something that the wise will acquire. And yet, don't uh, imagine that these proverbs are only to those who would rule in a monarchy. Instead, Israel's wise sayings are given to a people who did have a king. Solomon is that king. And Solomon knows that those who reign and influence and exist in authority have various moral and ethical obligations as people made in the image of God. And whose decisions impact those under their care and leadership. And so it is fitting that a king would be referenced in the ancient Near Eastern context. More application and extension of those passages beyond that day, though. We'll see this as we go through this. I want to notice with you in verse 28, the flourishing people that results from a king, especially a wise king, which would be the kind of king in view here. It tells us in verse 28 that in a multitude of people is the glory of a king, but without people, a prince is ruined. It links the, the uh, flourishing in future of this leader with a flourishing people. And if the people are away, or if the people diminish without people, the text says, well, what could we say then of that leader? The multitude of people, I think, is the result of something that is good, a flourishing, thriving life under the leadership of this king. And the multitude of people is his glory. The glory of the king would not be tied primarily to his wealth. Though in the ancient Near East, plenty of pagan armies might say, well, look how mighty and glorious our king is. Look at how much he's gained. 
Or someone might look at the vastness of an army and say, behold, the glory of our king. Look at all the people to fight for him. But here, the proverb points to the people under the king's glad and righteous rule. And he says, these are his glory. The glory of the king is in the multitude of people. This requires us to remember that such a ruler is tied and is to be obligated to the very proverbs that direct anyone in life, directing him to justice, faithfulness, righteousness, love, in whatever he can ensure under his leadership will lead to a thriving and vibrant citizenry. But there is no king or leader without people. He, someone might self-designate in the ancient Near East, oh, I'm a king, I'm a ruler. Well, where are your people? And this just vacant behind him. Well, there is no king without people following. There is no leader without people being led. And the ruin of the prince or the ruin of this king is tied to what happens to the people themselves. Um, you, you might say, as one writer did, there is an implication that rulers should protect and promote the good of their people. That way the people demonstrate a kind of public glory to the king. After all, how did the people become a multitude? Well, they flourished. They grew. They were able to get what they needed and how they needed it. And however they were initially, there is a multitude to testify to the greatness of the king. Well, what might cause numbers to dwindle? How might a king end up, uh, as the text says, without a people? Well, if he governs in such a way and leads in such a way that is to the detriment of the people, to where their very lives are compromised, and perhaps they relocate altogether. The glory of the king, not tied to his wealth, not tied to the might of his army, but to how the people are thriving under his righteous rule. Now, in verses 29 and following, I do think it is proper to see these verses as continuing to apply in some sense to leaders, to those who have some influence and authority to wield for the good of those under their care. I think you'll recognize in verses 29 and following, this does not tie to just someone who's in such a position. We've seen passages like verse 29 earlier in the book. It tells us about the wisdom of patience, which any ruler, which anyone in authority would be wise to heed and which would certainly be for the benefit of those in their care. But even at the most basic individual level is needful for our souls. Listen to the wisdom of patience. Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. There are proverbs you come across that do seem to have a kind of thorniness to them because of how in touch the writer is with our human dilemmas, our human proneness. And there can be those conditions in our relationships where we are not slow to anger, but instead can be hasty to react. And then you read in verse 29 and we think, ouch. Okay, Proverbs writer, we need to think about the importance of slow to anger and the detriment of hasty temper. Why does he commend the wisdom of patience? Notice the language slow to anger and how it connects to Psalm 145 that we heard in the scripture reading today. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. 
Here, the image bearers are being given this wisdom that whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. Those who are slow to anger are those seeking to be like the Lord who has made them. Uh, the Bible never says, Lord, the Lord uh, thy God is hasty in his temper. No, the Lord is not that way. But sinful man is that way, and it calls us here to reflect the character of the Lord and not the sinful instincts that might overpower. Whoever is slow to anger has something that characterizes them. They have great understanding. That word understanding is tied to the synonyms like insight, wisdom. Um, This is the language of Proverbs throughout. Somebody possesses something that leads to a virtue being described. They possess wisdom and what virtue is being described? The virtue of patience. Whoever is slow to anger. And we know patience is meant because of the second half of the verse. The hasty temper that exalts folly must mean that patience is being held out and a hasty temper is warned against. A few weeks ago, when we thought about patience and a hasty temper, I shared with you that patience is the exercise of trying to love someone else in front of your own instincts. It's to put the good of another person in front of your own. Patience says to another person, you matter more than me. Whatever I'm thinking and feeling, however frustrated I am, I want to exercise self-control, Thoughtfulness about my speech because the dignity of the person in front of me matters. Impatience is saying to another person, I matter more than you. Because that is an expression in that moment of here is my frustration. Here are the words that I'm feeling and thinking and now saying. But a hasty temper publicly exalts something. The language of exalt means to lift up in front of you. If I uh, picked up my youngest, I wouldn't do it with my 13-year-old, but I could still do it with my 5-year-old, and lifted him up above my head and held him out to you, like, uh, you know, the Lion King or something. Uh, You have this picture of lifting up or exalting in front of everybody. Lifting up or exalting in front of people is the image of verse 29. A hasty temper lifts up or makes known or publicizes something Do you want to be the person promoting and displaying folly? We have to ask these sorts of questions because in verse 29, great understanding and folly are the opposites. Great understanding is someone who has wisdom and discernment. They recognize the proper context and words to give and they know that being slow to anger is what is best. I mean, haven't you realized in your life that being slow to anger helps situations and being hasty with your temper always escalates things? I don't think in hindsight you realize looking back, yeah, you know, when I escalated things with my words and temper, it really made a difference. Uh, Not in a positive way, I bet. Uh, When you think of the wisdom of Proverbs, we all have experiences where we have either initiated or been passively present at this wisdom statement. We know the truth of this. Whoever is slow to anger. What is it that someone slow to anger has great wisdom about? What is it that they understand? I think they would understand, first of all, that impatience stirs more frustration. Listen to uh, chapter 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 
So if you're coming into a situation of conflict, a hasty temper doesn't help that at all. In fact, slow to anger and great understanding demonstrates, what am I going to add to this situation? Am I going to stir it up? Am I going to create more frustration? Am I going to push that down I don't, down the, the path in that direction? I think a great understanding also includes that a hasty temper doesn't love neighbor. A hasty temper is just thinking about what one wants, what's in one's way, how one is not getting it, what those obstacles are, and neighbor is something in my way and not someone to be loved. Someone who has great understanding and is slow to anger recognizes, okay, things aren't going my way at the moment. Uh, I have these expectations or these frustrations that I'm feeling. But this is a person made in the image of God. They have dignity and worth endowed by their creator on high. And therefore, I need to factor that in with whatever I do next. Someone who has great understanding is thinking about how a hasty temper isn't loving my neighbor, but rather being slow to anger. And finally, I think the one who is slow to anger with great understanding, they know that God is this way. They know that God is slow to anger and abounding in love. And they know that what is best for their soul and best for their neighbor is that they look to God to orient their affections, words, and decisions, not their sinful instincts. Is folly what you want to promote? Is folly what you want to lift up and display in your life? If you say no, but your short temper says yes, guess what ends up still getting exalted? Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. If we take a cue from verse 28 with that leadership position, where others in the citizenry of the ruler or someone in authority has people that they are caring for and that their decisions influence, well, how horrible is a hasty temper for people that you impact? Foolishness is not toward the good of others, but instead acting in wisdom, discretion, self-control. That blesses people that are connected to your relationships. That influences and helps to flourish those under your care. I I think verse 30 that talks about a heart of peace is connected to verse 29. I've tried to show in our study of Proverbs how these units have themes and interconnections to notice. A tranquil heart focuses on the inside of the person. And at the end of verse 29, we saw a hasty temper, which is something put on display. If someone is slow to anger... What might their heart be like? What is it in their heart that creates a kind of state or status that doesn't lead to acting in hasty temperamental ways with the people in their lives? I would put forward to you that verse 30 has much to teach us here and to reflect on. We're told that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Two, two things to consider then, tranquil heart and envy with their respective effects. The way you are inwardly, your inner life, has an effect on your body and not just relationships. Yes, a hasty temper exalts folly in front of others. But I, I want you to think not just of what would be best in your relationships with others. The Bible also puts forward your own good to consider. What's going to be best for your body and mind, not just your relationships with others? It's all on the table. 
And in verse 30, he puts forward the inner life of the person, their heart. Proverbs puts forward the heart in so many statements, right? That's the metaphor for the decision-making faculty. That's the place where your affections are and the direction of your life emanates from. That's the place. And he says here, a tranquil heart. That speaks of a peaceful heart. A heart that is in some kind of state of rest. Now, we certainly don't mean here the physical heart. A tranquil heart giving life to the flesh doesn't refer primarily to the organ, okay, right there inside your chest. Though you're all here this morning because your heart is doing what it needs to be doing. The tranquil heart is the metaphor for the inner life of the person before God and for neighbor. That is a certain kind of way. And the body experiences effects from this. A tranquil heart takes work. And a life in a fallen world where there are all sorts of enticements and temptations, all sorts of things to prompt us to covet and envy, a tranquil heart takes work. We have to trust in the providence of God. That's not always easy. We have to think about the value and importance of contentment in the Christian life. That's hard. We might find ourselves envious of someone else's achievement or blessing and find it challenging to rejoice in the lives of others who've been blessed by a gift in a particular way. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. There's a command in 1 Thessalonians 5 to give thanks in all circumstances because the circumstances don't always seem to be the kinds of things in life that might prompt thanksgiving to the mind. A tranquil heart doesn't just happen. A heart that's at peace with God and neighbor is one that is seeking to cultivate a life of gratitude before God and in His Word. Meditating on the Word of God. Spending time in prayer with the Lord. And seeking to rejoice in the gifts and blessings of God. Thinking on God. A tranquil heart takes work. A peaceful heart is not just the result of everything outwardly aligning the way they do. Listen, friends, if you're waiting for everyone around you and all of your circumstances to line up for you to finally get it together, that is not what the Bible is holding out. You, friend, must deal with your heart before God. No matter what anybody else is doing. No matter what your circumstances are lining up or against you. We must come before the Lord with our hearts. And our need is peace in the heart. Our need is a heart of peace where anger is not the thing primarily boiling. Where envy is not the thing rooted and growing. It tells us that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh. Plenty of medical studies have shown this. Surely you've read them. You've seen even the confirmation of this where the flesh here about the effects of of, uh, of peace in your heart and, and stability of life on your body. That it helps your blood pressure. And that it helps your immunity. And yet, a life that is stirred by jealousies and envies and stresses cultivates something else within the mind and body. Envy is like an acid that corrodes your joy. The image here in verse 30 is envy makes the bones rot. Well, the bones are what you need for the frame of your body. It's what you need for the structure of things to be upright and for you to do what you need to do. If your bones start giving way, you can recognize the challenging implications that would follow. Envy 
As John Piper puts it, he said it's a picture here of no spine, no shoulder, no arms, no ribs. The bone's just riding away. What's left? Something that feels repulsive and grotesque. You think that's, that's not what we want. And yet envy makes the bones rot. It's an image of the inner person's covetous and envious heart and how that affects the body. Some people in the grip of jealousy and envy experienced higher blood pressure, heart rates, and adrenaline levels, weakened immunity systems, spikes in anxiety, conditions rife for depression. When the Bible tells you that a tranquil heart gives life to the flesh and envy makes the bones rot, it's not joking. These metaphors are communicating what happens in our minds and bodies that compromise not just our spiritual well-being, but affect the very health of our lives. In an article on envy, Stephen Whitmer says that envy is terribly demanding. Although it delivers nothing, it requires much. He says it can absorb and dominate your life. It can poison pleasures, steal joys, and waste time. Envy can make your own blessed life feel shabby and inadequate. It's one of those sins, Whitmer writes, that presents the most obvious affront to the sovereignty of God. It questions God's plans, choices, His goodness. Envy is rebellion. And we need to consider the gravity of this because the tenth and final commandment in Exodus 20 says, You shall not covet. Which is to look at what neighbor has and wish you had it instead. When we think of the wisdom of this in verse 30, the tranquil heart, and in verse 29, being slow to anger and having great understanding, these hang together. That we would come before God and frequently and consistently, faithfully, with the word of God and in conversations with the people of God, asking that they would pray for us so that our lives would be walking in gratitude, blessing, love, and rejoicing. And not envy and strife and conflict and anger and impatience which corrode joy and damage our relationships. The relationships that we have in this life include, in verse 31, an attitude, an attitude toward the poor. An attitude toward the poor is laid out here in verse 31, and it's not the first time we've seen such a statement. Chapter 14, 21 says, Whoever despises his neighbor is a sinner, but blessed is he who is generous to the poor. We, we see language like that lurking in the background when we come to this passage in verse 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. What is it that the Proverbs are wanting you to do as you think about other people in your life? Remember that they are made. They are people who have been made by God. And that has to hold for the life of the believer a weighty reality that shapes how we think about people. We don't think about people in worldly categories as believers. We must not. Rather, we think about these as people who have been made by God in His image, endowed with dignity and honor, and ought to be worthy of respect and love, and whoever oppresses a poor man insults God. Which means the Lord takes it personally how we treat other people. Our love toward neighbor or our oppression of neighbor, either honor or dishonor God. Here the oppression to... Um, Speak and act in ways that exploit others. To know what would be a blessing for them and instead to ensure that it's not. 
Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. Friends, that's a strong statement. It's one of the strongest you'll find in Proverbs. That God himself is provoked by such horizontal treatment from one sinner to another. He who is generous to the needy honors him. The him at the end there, that, that's not the needy to whom one is generous. That is also God here at the end. Just as God might be provoked by the treatment of the poor, generosity to the needy would bring honor to God. Don't you want to bring honor to the Lord? Don't you want to not do things in your life that would provoke the Lord's anger or discipline? Then let us think about how the neighbors we interact with are made in His image and are worthy of dignity and respect. In chapter 13, 23, the fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it's swept away through injustice. That's not injustice that God brings about, but sinners, sinful people oppressing and causing injustice to their neighbor. And in the ancient world, to work the fields and to need the day's wages was for the day's food. It was for the feeding of the family for that 24 hours so that one could then work the next day for the next day's wages. That means to oppress or to exploit and to keep at disadvantage the poor. It is to, in effect, cause greater detriment, not just on that worker, but on those they're called to care for as well. Injustice is a provocation of God. But rather, to see those in need and to do what one can, in other words, to have an open-hearted and open-handed attitude toward neighbor, that blesses neighbor and honors God. Both directions have to be contemplated in our Christian lives. An action toward neighbor and an action toward God at the beginning of the verse. Then an action toward neighbor and an attitude toward God at the end of the verse. The attitude toward the poor. If we go back to verse 28 and we think about the leader, the one who has an influence, the one who might have authority to wield for the citizenry under his care, well, there are those who would need resources and care. Those who might be affected by oppression and injustice. And in the case of the one in authority, that is a major uh, telling point of what will be done to these made in the image of God. Is it just those in power gaining more power and those who have wealth gaining more wealth? The generous to the needy honors God. If you want to honor the Lord, I think what the proverb is telling you by implication, be open-handed And pray for open-heartedness toward everybody made in His image. There is an attitude about not just the present life, but toward the future that the Proverbs put forward. We do what we do toward neighbor and for the good of our souls. In light of what is to come, this life is not all there is. Verse 32 tells us the wicked is overthrown through his evil doing. But the righteous finds refuge in his death. I've said to you before that in our Proverbs study, the the language of of the King Solomon, he tells you what's down the road so that you will think wisely about your decisions. We can't always see days, weeks, years down the road. And the faithfulness of the wisdom of Proverbs does tell us what is down the road. And the wicked is overthrown through evil doing. That means the wicked should not think lightly of their sin, but tremble before God who's not only made them, but whom they are defying in their wickedness, and through their very evil doing, they will be undone by it. Their evil doing will be their undoing. 
The wicked is overthrown, and not because the wicked wanted it that way. The wicked proceed, proceed in their wickedness in defiance of the maker and convinced, no doubt, that everything's fine, they're invincible, nothing's going to bring me down. Being overthrown is being overthrown against one's will. It's the, the wicked having a, a plunging life and decisions toward one direction and then overthrown in judgment. The righteous finds refuge in his death. I don't think that's the death of the wicked there. I think while the wicked are overthrown, the righteous with what's in front of them, which includes death, the righteous find refuge. Judgment versus refuge. Not only do we think of our lives then before God and neighbor in the present, we should ponder the question, would my future, should, would I want it to include judgment and being overthrown by the very God who has made me? Or would I want my death to be refuge because I know God? And verse 32 holds out then judgment and calamity for the wicked, but vindication and hope for the righteous. What's in store for the people of God? Even though life is hard and even though a fallen world has many challenges and, and trials, the righteous finds refuge in death because the righteous know God. The righteous know God. We know that the seeds of things sown in hope in the Old Testament flower even more explicitly in the New. We might say it this way, to live is Christ and to die is gain in Philippians 1.21. Or we might speak of language of 1 Corinthians 15 where Christ's return will bring about a resurrection from the dead. That the people who know God will dwell everlastingly in embodied glory, the perishable putting on imperishable. The righteous finds refuge in his death. What we need then is for wisdom to go down deep. In Proverbs 13 and 14, we've talked a lot about wisdom and we've heard, but you can also hear without hearing. And what we mean by that, of course, is Jesus' language that he who has ears, let him hear. Because there is a kind of in one ear, out the other language that we know happens in relationships all the time. And all the parents said, amen. <laughs> you know it. When we think of life... Consisting of relationships where wisdom is shared and advanced and discussed and enjoyed needs to get down deep. The location of the heart again appears in verse 33 because out of the heart one acts. That means for good or for ill, you will live out what's in your heart. Jesus said it in Matthew 15. Where do all of the things outwardly that we see, acts of wickedness and commitments to evil, where does it flow from? Well, it flows from the evil heart. Therefore, I need wisdom in my heart because what's there that's being lived out isn't honoring to God, good for my soul or a blessing to my neighbor. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. And it may, but it makes itself known even in the midst of fools it's to say that wisdom is in the heart of the wise, but it doesn't stay private or secret. It is something that becomes known and displayed in the heart. It's lived out, spoken out, that how we speak and how we live are decisions made out of the heart. The heart is the place of where your desires and affections are. One writer says, wisdom is the home. Or, wisdom is at home in the heart. It stays there and then spreads out and makes its influence. 
And what that quote is saying to us is the latter part of verse 33. It makes itself known, even in the midst of fools. Fools are doing what's in their heart. They're speaking out what's in their heart. But the wise who have wisdom in their heart also make that known, even in their midst. They don't imitate the fool. They don't join in with their words, with the uh, fool's words. They don't want their decisions to uh, imitate the fool's decisions. Wisdom in their heart makes itself known. Even if the fool is doing differently. This is the stage, I think, that we want to arrive at in our progressive sanctification. Where what we hear is not merely something we have mental assent to. We say, yeah, I agree with what Solomon says. That sounds like good advice. Sounds like good and healthy wisdom. But that our devotion to the Lord and our delight in His truth would lead to our lives internalizing it in the very heart to where wisdom is what our decisions are according to. Wisdom is what our words are spoken according to. There are plenty of pressures in life that might lead us to do and say certain things that might not be in the heart. After all, every employer would love for their employees to be doing what is right even when the employer is not around. The parents would love their children to be doing what is right even when the parents are not around. That if a particular person is not there where there might be some sort of accountability or recognition, that wisdom is deep enough to where that is what the words and decisions are made according to. Then when we're alone, without our spouse or without our children, without our parents, without our employers, it's what's in the heart, wisdom, that comes out in our decisions, that displays our character. That would bring honor to God and deal with what is best for our souls. Wisdom rests in the heart of a man of understanding. It doesn't remain there as if it's some secret thing, right? Even when the fools are speaking and doing what they would, wisdom makes itself known from the heart of the wise. The implications of wisdom are far-reaching. I've spoken to you about um, the, your most proximate relationships, whether it's employee-employer relationships or in your household, neighbors and friends. We've thought a lot about that, but there are even more far-reaching consequences, and the kings and leaders in Israel knew this as well. It tells us in verse 34, the effects of righteousness and sin exist even on economic and social fronts. Righteousness exalts a nation, but, a repro- but sin is a reproach to any people. Here you have Solomon who is writing this, who would learn within the generations uh, that would follow, the people that is, how righteousness exalts a nation and sin is a reproach to it. If you read the testimony of the Israelites in First and Second Kings, you see leaders and policies of righteousness leading to flourishing versus sin and unrighteousness and ungodliness bringing shame and reproach. The word reproach there is a word associated with shame or disappointment. It's to bring something unwanted. You don't want reproach brought upon you. It has an effect that is undesired. And of course, in the scheme of God's plan, the shame of sin, it would be warranting judgment. Righteousness exalting a nation has an image of exalting like earlier, the hasty temper exalts folly. It's to make public. It's to lift up visibly. Righteousness promotes or exalts a nation. It's for the good of the people. Sin is not for our individual good. 
Sin is not for our collective good. Righteousness and doing what is honoring to the Lord is good for our individual heart. It is for our collective good as well. In other words, the principle here is the far-reaching concerns about what we contribute in our individual decisions, in our policies, in our leadership. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. But what if you have, what if you have citizens and authorities and leaders who are promoting and advancing sin? Then what you have is a reproach being brought and not exalting a nation in what is good. What about a nation's international policies? Thinking of questions like this. Would a nation act with trustworthiness and promoting justice? Would a nation model wise peacemaking and peacekeeping? Important questions for nations to ask. What about their domestic policies? Does a nation speak the truth and love the truth? Promote what is righteous and good for neighbor? Do the scales of justice weigh the same for the rich and for the poor? For the weak and for the strong? Do policies oppress the poor and exploit them? Do the powerful experience favor from the law? Do the innocent find relief and protection? Do the guilty face appropriate consequences? Questions like this are, I think, the kinds of implications and applications for any people. And then we look at the truth of verse 34, that righteousness exalts and promotes the good welfare for a nation. But sin has a different collective effect. It brings reproach. God is exalted as king over all the nations. When you listen to the prophets, Isaiah would talk about not just what God had to say to Israel, but judgment that would come on Tyre and Sidon. Words that Egypt needed to be warned about. And words that the Ammonites needed to remember. And words that all the other nations you see in the ancient Near East. And that's not because all of those nations had been gathered at Sinai. And had entered into the same kind of covenant with the Lord. But because they are people made in the image of God who is king over all the nations. That means there is no jurisdiction on planet earth where our righteous God is not sovereign and worthy of worship. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. The last verse this morning says, A servant who deals wisely has the king's favor, but his wrath falls on one who acts shamefully. This speaks of the king having people who know how to act with discretion and wisdom and those who don't. And the king's response to that. A servant who deals wisely, this is someone who knows how to conduct himself with words and actions that are wise, that are prudent, And that there is a benefit to this in the relationship of the one in the court of the king. Namely, the king's favor. Which, of course, would be something desirable. I mean, the opposite is the king's wrath. Nobody's looking for that. Instead, knowing the favor of the king in the court of the king is a blessing. And the servant here is one who recognizes how to speak and act with wisdom in the fear of the Lord. Even before human authorities. Instead of of that ending the verse, though... There is a contrast. Not only the king's favor might be put upon those in his court, but also his wrath. Now, why might that have been the case? Why might somebody experience the wrath of someone in authority? They act shamefully. And that's not a matter of subjectivity here. But it's wisdom or shamefulness that's according to God's righteous standard in his word. The wrath of the king falls on one who acts 
shamefully. Someone who acts dishonorably. Someone who acts not for what would honor the Lord or honor neighbor, but instead what is shameful before God and not as defined by man. I look at these verses, friends, and I see the importance rising up from them, the same thing we've seen in other Proverbs, of the state of your heart. Peace in the heart. Wisdom in the heart. So that our lives and our decisions on both individual and close proximity and even widespread collective levels would have ripple effects for good and for love and for peace and for flourishing. Let me tell you then what you need for peace in the heart. You need Christ in the heart. What do you need to have wisdom in the heart? That's the result of Christ in the heart as well. These verses are framed by chapter 1 and 31 of Proverbs that are emphasizing one's heart toward God, that a life of revering and loving God, and ultimately in the New Testament, revering and trusting Christ would lead to these things. Peace in the heart is the result of Christ in the heart. And wisdom in the heart is the result of Christ in the heart. The heart of the person matters before God because you've been created to know Him. And our world, our culture, has all manner of temptations seeking to woo us into what would be dishonorable, what would not be wise, what would not be for our good, or for the good of our neighbor. What we need to know in the message of the gospel is Paul's language of 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, This saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This good news for us puts forward what our hearts need in order to walk wisely before God. We need to know Christ. It's possible you're in the place this morning, and you're thinking about these wisdom statements about loving God and loving neighbor, and you might think to yourself, this sounds fine, you know, having a peaceful heart, walking in patience, doing what would be a blessing to neighbor, You think outwardly, those seem like good ideas on the surface. But don't you see the corruption and corrosion that sin and wickedness have had upon human relationships throughout the world? The problem is not just out there. The problem is inward. The problem that Christ has come to address and deliver us from is the state of our own human heart that has lived in defiance of God. And that is not sought to promote his glory and righteousness in the world. That has not revered and loved him. But instead has loved wickedness and cherished what dishonors God. Our problems are our individual and our collective hearts. What do we need? We need to do what Romans 10 says. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Heart and mouth, just like in Proverbs, speak here in Romans 10 of that inner life of the person that results in an outward expression of desire and allegiance. The heart that says inwardly, I believe in what Christ has done, that he has taken my shame and sins on the cross. And that only Christ and by his grace alone is any sinner saved, including us. Then with the heart one is believing and with the mouth confessing that Jesus is Lord. It is a statement that Jesus is Lord of one's life. Recognizing that he's the king, that he is the sovereign one, that he is the almighty. To declare Jesus is Lord is a statement of confessing from the heart your allegiance to Christ. 
It is to live then as a disciple and a Christian. Christians believe that the Bible teaches these things about Jesus. And we want to confess and live with our lives in line with that. That he is Lord of all. King of kings and Lord of lords. I love the news of Proverbs 14.28. Because I think it's most profoundly true about Christ. Proverbs 14.28 says, In a multitude of people is the glory of a king. Well, let me tell you then about King Jesus. Because in Revelation chapter 7, it says, Behold, I saw a great multitude. And it was a multitude that nobody could number, from every nation, from every tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Yes, indeed, the, the glory of a king is the multitude of the people. And they, with robes and palm branches in their hands, they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray together.